All right, Mark chapter number 8 tonight. Mark chapter 8. We've been studying the second coming of Christ as it's found in the four Gospels, and we move from Matthew into Mark this evening. Mark 8, let's read starting at verse number 27. And Jesus went out and his disciples into the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And by the way, he asked his disciples, saying unto them, Whom do men say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But some say Elias, and others one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Peter answereth and saith unto him, Thou art the Christ. And he charged them that they should tell no man of him. Now John 4 tells you why they didn't yet have the Holy Spirit and the Lord couldn't trust them to get it right. And so he's, he's having them wait and, and not tell all that they think they know or kind of know until after the Holy Spirit comes and indwells them and so the Holy Spirit can be the spokesman, not these oft-confused disciples. And for example, verse 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. And be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he spake that saying openly and Peter took him and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. And when he had called the people unto him, with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me, and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Father, help us tonight. Help us, Lord, really, truly to get a, a, a grasp of these truths. Lord, may they take hold upon us and, and may they affect us our thinking and our conduct. We do ask and we do pray in Jesus' name and amen. Obviously, the Lord is returning, stated by Him clearly, when I return, when, when the Son of Man uh, cometh in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. And obviously, there would be people who have survived this great tribulation time, they are alive when Jesus Christ returns, but he's ashamed of them. And he's ashamed of them because they have been ashamed of him, and yet from the context in which this statement is found, it's not at all what you think it would be. They're not ashamed of him in that they're denying that he's the Lord. They're not ashamed of him in that they didn't believe in his coming. They're, they're not ashamed of him in that they, they didn't like his rules and his regulations. Among the several definitions of the word ashamed, confused by guilt or a conviction of some criminal action or intercourse conduct or by the exposure of some gross errors or misconduct, which a person is conscious must be wrong and which tends to impair his honor or reputation. Ashamed can mean I, I don't want to act on what I know to be true because I'm, I'm not certain it's the right thing to do. I'm confused because I'm, I'm, I'm divided in my opinion. And if you notice here, in verses 27 to 30, 
There is a godly knowledge of who Jesus is. But in verses 31 to 33, there's a satanic opposition to what Jesus does. And both of these characterize the same man within a matter of minutes. Peter is not the one who is opposed to Christ going to the cross, but Peter is the one who voices that opposition. Peter is not the one who objects to Calvary. It's Satan who objects to Calvary, but Satan finds a ready servant in Simon Peter. And tonight, I, I can't speak about any of you or for any of you, but tonight I, I have to think of how, how certain I am that Jesus, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and how certain I am that He is coming back to rule and reign on this earth, and yet how that certainty doesn't seem to make me pick up my cross and bear it daily. Because like Peter of old, I know who Jesus is, but what I'm really interested in is that kingdom. And I know he's the Christ, but if he's not going to get me this earthly honor and glory and comfort and prosperity, then perhaps I'll discard him and look to another that can get me this earthly prosperity and comfort and, and so forth. See, the issue here is, when Peter says, thou art the Christ, Messiah, Old Testament, Christ, New Testament, Peter is acknowledging you are the one who will fulfill the promises. But then his follow-up comments indicate the only promises he was excited about were those regarding the establishment of the kingdom, not those regarding his suffering on the cross. Psalm number 22 closes with Jesus Christ inheriting the nations as a reward for his death upon the cross. That comes after 21 verses of his suffering at Calvary. Peter says, you're the Christ. Let's skip those first 21 verses and get right to that throne. Isaiah 53 closes with God the Father giving God the Son the kingdoms of this world as a reward for his sacrifice, but first 10, 11 verses of that chapter are about the horrible sufferings of the Lamb upon the cross. And Peter says, can we just skip to verse 12? And I don't know about you, I'm just a little convicted when I read about Peter not wanting the Christ of the cross and Peter not being all that interested in taking up and bearing his cross, but can you just get me to your second coming when we hand out the rewards? And Jesus said, there may be no rewards. In fact, I might be ashamed of you when we set up this kingdom because you wanted the kingdom, but you didn't want the king to do it his way. So watch carefully, and we'll go back and pick this apart a little bit. The Lord has just healed a blind man in verses 22 to 26. And Jesus went out and his disciples into the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And by the way, he asked his disciples, saying unto them, Whom do men say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, which is an odd thing. I don't find any, any indication in the four Gospels that John ever wrought miracles. He preached. Preached righteousness, preached holiness, preached separation, preached repentance, baptized. But when you see blind men receive their sight and lame men walk and lepers cleansed, why would you think that was John the Baptist? But they did. Maybe he's just, he's the greatest man they ever knew and in their experience there had never been anybody like John the Baptist and they just, it, it just made sense to them to link the two together. But some say Elias, which makes more sense. Elijah wrought miracles and uh, all the way to the point of raising the dead, but Elijah's been gone a long, long time. 
But again, the thinking is, here's some great one from our history, and let's link this this miracle-working man to him. And others, one of the prophets, which is true, but it's degrading. If, if, you're, if you're Joel, it is a great thing to be counted as one of the prophets. If you're Hosea or uh, Haggai, it is a great thing to be counted as one of the prophets. If you're the creator of the heavens and the earth, are you kidding me? You're going to put me on par with them? That'd be a huge step down for Jesus Christ to be reckoned as one of the prophets as, as Islam renders him. And he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Peter answereth, because one thing about old Peter, he's never reluctant when it comes time to speak up. Peter answereth and saith unto him, Thou art the Christ. Other gospels include the Son of the living God. But the Christ here is significant, because as we said, it's the Jewish Messiah, it's Messiah the Prince of Daniel chapter 9. It is, it is the, the one who will crush the Gentile kingdoms and establish a kingdom and a government on this earth that will know no end. And Peter says, I believe that you are the one who will crush Babylon and crush Persia and crush the Medes and crush the Greeks and crush the Romans and and you are the stone without hands that's going to be set up on this earth. You're the king. And that's very true. But it's not all the truth. And he charged them they should tell no man of him and it's obvious as you read the entire passage why. Because you know who I am, but you don't know enough about who I am to speak for me just yet. And you know my place, that, that I am the one was prophesied in the Old Testament, but you've only selected those prophecies that suit you. And you're not too fond of those that do not. And so I don't want you talking about this. I'll tell you when you can. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. That doesn't seem like it matches Messiah the King. The Son of Man must be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes. And up to that point, if he's teaching that over the space of an hour and explaining that and running the appropriate references back in the Old Testament, I don't think he meets with any opposition because Peter and James and John and the rest of the disciples, they know the priesthood is corrupt. They know the scribes and the Pharisees are binding heavy burdens upon men. They, they know of the Lord's woes that he's pronounced upon them. And, and so, uh, of course, of course, these chief priests and Elders and scribes are going to reject him. But then he begins to try and teach them and be killed. And be killed. And that just doesn't, it just doesn't compute. If you're the king and the king gets killed, what becomes of the kingdom? If you're the king and they let them, you let them put you to death, how is that? You crushing them and grinding them to powder. When it was prophesied that you'd sit on the throne of David and of your kingdom there would be no end. What's what's this be killed stuff? And they just couldn't grasp it even to the very morning of his resurrection. They, They never got a hold of it. Be killed and after three days rise again. Now, now think with me, and we're going to try to, just for a minute, criticize their, their misplaced hopes, and then before we condemn them, we're going to fast forward to our day. You're going to die. Everybody's going to die. Everybody Jesus is speaking to is going to die. And he is telling them, I will rise from the dead. You talk about a hope for dying people to have a Messiah that 
conquers death. He goes down into death and then rises again. And no matter how many times he told them that, they never allowed it to get in their hearts. They never allowed their minds to believe it. Right up until, as I said, the, the very morning of his resurrection, they're not at the tomb, and when the women come and tell them the tomb is empty, they don't believe the women. You know what they wanted? Kingdom, you know, palaces, lands, fruitful crops, perfect health. They wanted the earthly material blessings that came with Messiah's kingdom. And he's trying to tell them, I'm going to conquer death. And they weren't interested. So I can't believe that. It's horrible. You can't. Of those, of those few people left in our society that claim to be Christians... They will gather by the dozens in churches that rejoice in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they will gather by the thousands in churches where they are promised prosperity and wealth and healing and property. To this very day, 2,000 years later, people who know they are going to die will walk right past the Savior who died and was buried and rose again to go find a preacher who will tell them the prayer of Jabez will give them a bigger house. They'll walk right past the resurrection of Jesus Christ to get smacked on the forehead by a man who will tell them, I can heal you, you can live another five years. To this day, people want the kingdom blessings connected with Israel's Messiah more than they want eternal life purchased for them by the death of Christ at Calvary. And as much as you want to criticize these disciples of 2,000 years ago, how much more light do men have today? How much more truth do men have today? How many more opportunities have men had today? Uh, 2,000 years of this Bible preaching. Uh, they, they've never seen a man lay down his life and die and take it up again. When Jesus tells them that, it's all prophecy. Well, we got the eyewitness testimony of 500 witnesses. Saw him alive after he was buried and, and dead and buried. Men that laid down their lives and women that laid down their lives and died because they couldn't deny it was true that he's risen from the dead. And yet this Sunday, if you offer people an opportunity to come to church and hear preaching about Jesus Christ and how he can save their souls, they'll tell you no unless you offer donuts. In fact, the churches don't even advertise we're going to preach about the risen Christ. The churches advertise we've got coffee and, and Danish. Because people would rather have a morning biscuit than have their sins forgiven. They'd rather have a cup of coffee than an empty tomb. Man, they're settling cheap nowadays. You, they used to have to mail in 10 bucks and you'd promise they'd get 100 back someday if they sowed the seed faith gift. Now, you don't, now they don't even have to bring the 10 bucks. Just please, just come, just come. We'll give, we promise we'll, we'll give you a bagel. <laughs> and you can wear your pajamas. You don't even have to get dressed. Just. And so you know if you, if you were to turn on the religious television and you know if you are to go to the religious bookstore that to this day, people who claim to be disciples of Jesus Christ and would give the right answer, who is Jesus? Oh, he's the Savior. And what has this Jesus done? Well, he's made it possible for me to enlarge my coasts. He's made it possible for me to call down blessings from heaven. He's made it possible for me to have prosperity. It's the same talk. And so Jesus says, in verse number 32, He spake that saying openly, and Peter took him and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned 
about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter. So Jesus and Peter are just standing face to face rebuking each other. Peter, who do you think I am? You're the Christ, the Son of God. And what do you think I'm going to do? Well, you're going to set up a kingdom. No, I'm going to die on a cross. You're wrong. Peter is telling the Christ, you're wrong. Peter just confessed, you're the Son of the living God and you're wrong. Because you don't agree with me. And I can't believe a man do a thing like that. Really? Yeah. You know how many people walk through these doors to visit and you open the Bible and you read to them from the Bible and they say, I don't agree with that. I'm never coming back here. And if you ask them on the way out the door, are you saved? Oh, yeah, I'm saved. So you know Jesus? Oh, yeah, I know Jesus. Well, you, we think we'll see you again. No, because he's wrong. Hadn't changed a lot. Look, when you, well, you just, they don't, no, just because they don't agree with you. No, when you open the Bible and read people what the Bible says, and they say in their heart, I don't agree with that. You know what they're doing? They're taking the Lord, they're not denying he's the Lord, and rebuking him. You're wrong. My daughter was born this way. You're wrong. It's, uh, my gender is fluid. You're wrong. There's many ways to heaven. These aren't people who are denying that Jesus is the Christ. They just rebuke him when he doesn't see things their way. Plenty of that, isn't there? He rebuked Peter saying, get thee behind me, Satan. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. Now here's, here's where I've got to put me on trial. I don't know what you do with yourself. But you read the Bible, but I've got to put myself on trial. You walk into a house, and someone is cooking something, and you... You smell that and you say, I really want that. It's that savory meat that Isaac fixed up for his, or, or Jacob fixed up for his daddy, Isaac. Oh, that smells good. Then you come in here in the morning and you open the door to my office and you walk in there and you get a head full of mildew and mold and whatever else has been in there for 45 years that takes your breath away. And you say, oh man, I don't open the door. I don't want that. It's instinctive. It's not thought out. It's not planned. You just walk into a room and you smell something and, and every part of you says, oh, I like that. I want that. Or you walk in a room and you smell something and every part of you says, I don't like that, I don't want that. You know what Jesus said? Peter, you got the right answers, but instinctively, you want what Satan's selling. You got the right answers, but before you have time to adjust and, and line up with what you're expected to be, your response to sensory, your response to savory in impulses is satanic. And I just got to try myself every single day, and, and I, I want you to try yourself every single day. The question is not, can you give the right answer? The question is not, can you adjust and bring yourself in line with what's expected of you but what's your response to the stimulus around you? What, what appeals to you before you think it through? What are you, what are you drawn to before you make a conscious effort to yield or, or fight? You walk in a house instantly, oh, I like that. You walk in another instantly, ooh, I, what's that smell? I don't like that. You know, some people walk into church, some of our young people, some of our older people. If you gave them a quiz, 
Is Jesus Christ God? Yes. Is the Bible the Word of God? Yes. They could get all the right answers. But as soon as they walk into church, it's, I don't like that. I don't, I don't like this. I don't like this. Now, they'll adjust their conduct so that nobody knows how much they don't like it, but they savor the things of the world, not the things of God. I mean, who would, who would ever guess that Satan, uh, that uh, Peter's following Jesus around, he left all to follow him, he's out there doing all this service, but his savory, his, his perception is satanic, not Christ-like. Well, what would, what would key that? Or what, what would be my indication in my life, would be your indication in your life? Verse 34, when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said, okay, everybody gather around, we've got to talk about this. Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And that's exactly what my flesh is not interested in. Because that cross has to do with shame and rejection and spitting and blows and mockery and loss and pain and death. And that's not what I want if I'm going to follow God. If I'm going to serve Jesus, he's going to heal my body and pay my bills and solve my problems and... Well, no, I, here's, here's what I want you to do. I want you to pick up that cross, and I want you to just die to your own will and die to your own opinions and die to your own lusts and die to your own desires and die to rebuking me when you don't agree with me. And every single day, I want you to live the way I want you to live and stop telling me you want me to live the way you want me to live. And Peter and Jesus are face to face, and Jesus saying, I want to do it this way, and Peter saying, no, I want you to do it this way. And how many days in our life has the Lord said, no, this is what I want you to do, and we said, no, that's not what I want, I want to do. I want you to bless me while I do this. And he says in 35, or whosoever will save his life, shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall find it. What should a profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And what should a man give in exchange for his soul? Now, great, great uh, salvation verses to preach on. Uh, you're better off having your soul saved than gaining the whole world. I get that, but let's, let's keep this thing on track here. I've trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior. I have eternal life. The issue here is not me trying to stay alive because I know I'm going to die someday. The issue here is not if I, if I obey Jesus Christ, I'm never going to die. That's not the issue. Peter has a certain way he wants to live. Jesus has a certain way he wants Peter to live. And Peter says, Jesus, I want to follow you, but I don't want to lose my life. I want you to come over here and get in my life. I want you to come. Here's the life I'm going to live. I'm going to, I'm going to do this for a career, and I'm going to marry this person. I'm going to make this much money, and I'm going to do this on the weekends. And I want you to get over here and make this all work. And then Jesus said, no, I'll tell you what I want you to do. I want you to come serve me on your weekends, and I want you to give me part of that money, and I want you to give me your, your career choices, and I want you to give me your marriage choices. And we say, you know what? <laughs> I'll see you in heaven, but I ain't giving up my life. Because you're not worth it. I mean, no offense. I mean, I'm glad you, you saved me and all that because I, I want to go to heaven. But it's a choice between serving you on a Saturday afternoon or serving me. It's going to be me. Because <laughs> I got a better plan for my life than you got for my life. See, he's not asking you to Take a hammer and nails and put yourself on a cross. 
He's asking you to say, if that's what you want me to do, and I want to do something different, I am going to crucify myself on my cross. I'm going to take up my cross and die. And here's why. Because I understand that now is the time for saving souls. And when you get back is the time for gaining the whole world. And I can give up that extra money and I can give up that extra free time and I can give up that extra pleasure now because I believe you're going to make it all up to me forever when you set up your kingdom. But if I don't trust that you really are the king who's going to set up his kingdom if you don't do it now, then I'm going to try and get all the kingdom I can now because I'm afraid it might not work out later. Now, you say, well, I don't think that's the right. Listen, what's Peter upset about? If he's the king and the prophecies about Messiah are going to be fulfilled in him, what, it doesn't matter if he dies on a cross. He said he's going to rise again. So it's just going to be postponed a while while I do something more important. Peter doesn't want that something more important. He wants the kingdom. Now you know how these, these preachers, you know, you know how they're, they're making it work? You know how they're getting rich and getting their jets and their big cars and their big congregation and all that? Never mind your cross. We're not going to ask you to give up anything. We're going to tell you how you can live like kings now. And that's always been the satanic appeal, at least in prosperous nations. I don't know how this would work in, in the third world, but, but, but I mean, there's always going to be rich people and poor people. Maybe you move higher up on the hill where, where your garbage rolls down in somebody else's yard instead of your garbage rolling down your yard. I mean, there's always... Always high and low. You see what we're dealing with here? He's not saying, whosoever, if you, if you take up your cross and follow me, you're not going to die. Because everybody's going to die. And then we're going to have eternal life with the Lord. That's not what he's saying. Are you willing tomorrow to lose your life to live the way I want you to? Are you willing this weekend to give up your life to live the way I want you to? Would you not say it's fair that a lot of our thinking and a lot of our praying and a lot of our motivation is, God, this is what I want. I'm asking you for it in Jesus' name. And very little of our praying and our motivation is, God, what do you want Show me in Jesus' name. So look what he says in verse number 38. Whosoever therefore should be ashamed of me, confused by guilt or a conviction of some criminal action or some indecorous conduct. Lord, I just, I just don't think you're doing it right. I just don't think what you're asking is, is fair. I just. It's not a shame to the Lord like, oh, no, 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 no I'm not a Christian. Don't, I, I would never, no, I'd never claim his name. It's not that. I've trusted him as my savior. I just, I've got a real strong disagreement about what he's expecting from me. The Lord says, okay, if you're ashamed of me and of my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation. And so we pause there. This is why the devil either wants you out of church or, or in a college or in a church that's going to teach you you can follow Jesus but ignore his words. He said, me and my words. Because in case you don't know it, he's been gone for a long time. 
And in his absence, you've got a million people saying, Jesus told me this and Jesus told me that, and you've got the Bible. So we've got what he actually said, and then we've got what all kinds of people wish he'd said. (laughs) He said, I'm talking about your relationship to what I said in my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. I had to make this choice 40, let's see, 17th was... uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Tuesday, Tuesday was 17, 43 years ago, Tuesday morning, got saved. And, and, and here's what I had to decide. I, I went on, I finished college twice. And the professors said, those words in the Bible aren't true. But they're adulterers and adulteresses and sinners. Why would I believe you? Instead of the one that died to save my soul. And then you, you, you get a job. You go to work and you start witnessing. Oh, that Bible, that Bible's just full of lies. That Bible's full of mistakes. You're an adulterer. You're an adulteress. You're sinners. Why would I believe you and not believe Jesus? If you're going to follow somebody's commandments, doctrines, opinions, views... It says a lot about you if you choose adulterers and adulteresses rather than the Son of God. It says a lot about you if you'd rather take the side of sinners against the Bible than the word of the Holy Jesus in the Bible. So before you reject this book, just ask yourself, who is it exactly that's telling me not to believe this book? Some pretty rotten people. And who is it that spoke to me in this book and told me, me to follow him? Uh, pretty much the only good person that's ever walked this earth. And then he says, Of him also, so the Son of Man be ashamed, when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So let's establish this fact, because this is what we're talking about these weeks. He is coming, obviously. He is coming in glory. So each and every day down here, I've got my life, and then there's the life Christ wants me to live that involves taking up the cross and following Him. And each day, God helping me, God helping you, we lose our life and find his life in its place. And then when he gets back, he says, so I'm going to have this kingdom going here for a thousand years, and I, I noticed that for the 25 years after I saved you, or the 40 years after I saved you, that um, you really thought my way was the best way. I think I can trust you to help me carry out my work in this kingdom. Or I get saved and, and I fight against the Bible and I fight against the Word of God and I don't, want to, I don't want to be faithful to Jesus. I just want Christ to come into my life and sprinkle it with His blessings. And He comes back and He's setting up His kingdom and He said, now let's see. You didn't, you didn't agree with anything that I wanted. You, you, you didn't think I knew what I was doing. You didn't think my way was best. I'm pretty sure I got no place for, of service for you in this kingdom. I can't trust you. I would be ashamed to put you in a position of authority in my kingdom. Because you always savored Satan's offerings and turned up your nose at what I was offering. It's great to preach out of this passage about getting saved. What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? The point of that in its context is if you got everything there was out there, it's not worth knowing Christ. That's the most important thing there is. So don't trade getting more and more and more of the world for missing out on walking with Christ and 
serving Christ and living for Christ. Because when he comes again, he comes again. Be pretty evident he was right. Be pretty evident I was wrong. So let's just go ahead and get in line with him now. So when he comes, he won't be ashamed of our conduct. Kind of interesting, isn't it? That I could live in such a way that Jesus would be ashamed of that. Why? Well, I'm connected with him. His, his name, whatever people think of him, it's largely because of us. So we don't want to make him ashamed. Amen. Well, let's pray real quick and don't, don't run for the exits. We're not done. What? All right. Father, thank you for the Bible. Lord, if we gave an invitation, we'd probably settle some things here for a few minutes, but Lord, we need this to, to work in our hearts and carry on for a lot longer than just a little while tonight. We really need, Lord, to, to not just let you come into our life, but to give up our life and live your life and the life you want us to live. And uh, we pray that you'd help us with it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, as a special bonus tonight, and take a little more, can't you? The night is young. Um, our Brother Riley is going to come and give us his annual um, report on the festive season in which we are all currently embroiled. And so, Brother Chris, come right ahead and uh, be a blessing to our church. You know, old home folks, it's nothing new to you, but you know, if, um, if someone were to visit our church not knowing anything about it, they would probably immediately notice that there's something different. Some things would be missing. They wouldn't see ribbons, they wouldn't see ornaments, they wouldn't see mistletoe, they wouldn't see holly, they wouldn't see bows, they wouldn't see a tree fastened so it doesn't move, decked with silver and gold. And uh, so it has kind of, I guess, become kind of an annual tradition to, to talk about these things. And uh, I can usually find someone out in the world who kind of helps shed a little light, an unbeliever who kind of sheds a little light on the subject. So. Um, you know what, before I start that, I want to say this. I do not celebrate Christmas. I don't have a tree. We don't do presents. We don't do any of those things. That doesn't make me any more righteous than anyone else. My righteousness is imputed to me by God because I trusted Jesus as my Savior. My stand on that doesn't make me any more spiritual than anyone else. In fact, I believe that there are people who celebrate Christmas, I would say they're more spiritual than I. So I don't claim to be any more spiritual because of the stance I take on Christmas. But I do say this, I believe it's the correct stance to take because I believe it's biblical. So I think it is correct to take this stand. So having said that, you know, we don't study about Satan, but we learn about him as we study the Bible. And we know in John chapter 8 that we learn that he is the father of lies. We learn that he was a murderer from the beginning. Revelation chapter 12, verse number 9, we find out that he is he Satan which who deceiveth the whole world. So he is a murderer, he's a liar, and he is the deceiver. And he's an antichrist. He's anti-God, he's anti-Christ. What God is for... Satan is against. What God is against, Satan is for. So we remember that. So with that in mind, let me read you this, or at least part of this article. The title of it is, Other Gods Born to Virgins on December 25th Before Jesus Christ. There are common themes in ancient religion that make one wonder if Christianity was not the one exception to the rule that societies tend to adopt beliefs, stories, and tra traditions from one another. 
True, it's not always clear whether common themes are a testament to the human exchange of ideas or to the universal imagination of early human thought. Parallels may exist between religions on entirely different continents, for example, but that does not necessarily mean one influenced another. But what is clear is where certain ideas in human history did not originate. Long before, and he uses the word Yahweh, I guess referring to God the Father, long before Yahweh and Jesus Christ, many religions had gods who were born in strange, miraculous ways, at times to virgins, who came to earth, and though these are not the focus of this article, performed miracles, taught about judgment and the afterlife, were killed, reborn, and ascended into heaven. True, these stories are different from those of Christ, but the common archetypes and culture in close proximity to Palestine suggest pagan influences on the biblical story of Christ's birth. So what we have there, we've got, we've got a man who looks at history without the benefit of the Bible and understanding the Bible, and he comes to what would be a rational conclusion if we didn't have more information, which is, Religions, far before Jesus came into the world, there were religions that were based on a virgin mother with a son who was deity. And so that's what the world, that's what the understanding world knows and understands, that there were religions prior to Christianity that had the mother and child. There were plenty of mother and child religions out there. Now, a good number of them are called sun gods. And as the title told us, these, these different sun gods, well, a dozen, maybe more, were all born on December 25th. So that's kind of what the world understands when they look at all the history involved. But we have the Bible. We don't have to rely on man's version of history. We've got God's word on the matter. So if you will, get two places in your Bible. Get Luke chapter one get 1st Chronicles 24. Luke chapter 1, get 1st Chronicles 24. So let's, first of all, let's, let's talk about Jesus's birth and the date of his birth. Luke 1, verse number 5. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias, the course of Abia, that's important, the course of Abia, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking on all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. And they had no child, because that Elizabeth was barren, and they were both now well stricken in years. It was past time for, for uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth to be able to have any children. And it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course. So what we found is Zacharias' time of service was the course of Abiah. It's called Abijah in the Old Testament. So you've got 1 Chronicles 24. Go there if you will, please. 1 Chronicles 24. Now these are the divisions of the sons of Aaron. The sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, Eliezer and Ithbar. But Nadab and Abihu died before their father and had no children. Therefore, Eliezer and Ithmar executed the priest's office. And David, David distributed them, both Zadok of the sons of Eli, uh, Eleazar and Amalek, uh, uh, the sons of Ithamar, according to their offices and their service. So what David did was he took, he had, you had temple service that was going on continually. And he set up 24 courses that the sons of Aaron would do service within the temple. There were 24 two-week periods of service. Each, each was called a course. Now, if you go down here, you see the lots beginning to fall in verse number seven. First lot came forth to Jehoiarib, the second to Jedidiah. So drop down now to number 10, the seventh to Hakaz, the eighth to Abijah. So, Zacharias served in the course of Abijah. That's the eighth two-week course, which means it would have been the end of the fourth Jewish month, Tammuz. Now, Tammuz corresponds to the last week in June and the first week in July in our calendar. The Jewish calendar, the Gregorian calendar are different, so you have to kind of, you have to kind of translate one to the other to find out what month you're talking about. 
So we're talking about the course of Abijah, which would be the last week in June or the first week in July. That's on our calendar. Now back to Luke number one. Verse number nine. According to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of incense. And there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard. And the wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. And thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth, for he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. And he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zechariah said unto the angel, Whereby shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife well stricken in years. And the angel answering said unto him, I am Gabriel that stand in the presence of God and I am sent to speak unto thee and to show you these glad tidings. And behold, thou shalt be dumb and not be able to speak until the day that these things shall be performed, because thou believest not my words, which shall be fulfilled in their season. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he tarried so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak unto them, and they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned unto them and remained speechless. And it came to pass that as soon as the days of his ministration were accomplished, he departed to his own house. After those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and hid herself five months, saying, Thus hath the Lord dealt with me in the days wherein he looked on me to take away my reproach among men. So basically what we just learned there is that as soon as Zacharias' course was over, he went home and then Elizabeth conceived. Verse number 26. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God into a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of Mary and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in under her and said, Hail thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and he shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For with God nothing shall be impossible. So when God came to Mary, Elizabeth was six months pregnant. Six months from the first week of July, July, August, September, October, November, December. So in December, Mary conceived of the Holy Ghost. Let's count nine months. January, February, March, April, May, June, July, August, September. So Jesus was born somewhere around September. Late September, first week, first week in October, last two weeks September. We know what we know one thing for sure, he wasn't born December twenty-fifth. So okay. Now, sun worship. Get Malachi chapter four. Malachi chapter four. Malachi chapter four, verse number one. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven. And all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son, look at that spelling, S-U-N, shall the Son, capital S, Son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. Of course, that references to Jesus. You know, the Son, the Son, S-U-N, our star, it's an absolute necessity for, for life, physical life on earth. 
We have to have it as things are now. And you know what, if the sun was just a little bit further away, temperature would be so low that we would not have life as we know it. Conversely, if it was just a little bit closer, it would be too hot and we couldn't have life as we know it. Our relationship to the sun is what gives us life. How about that? Interesting, isn't it? The, the sun is necessary for food. Without the sun, there wouldn't be photosynthesis, and that means plants wouldn't grow. The animals wouldn't have no plants to eat. That means we would have no animals to eat. So without the sun, there'd be no food. There'd be no, there'd be no living water without the sun. The sun provides the heat that evaporates the salt water in the oceans, rises up, it condenses in the clouds, moves over land, like the land last couple of days, and down drops fresh water. Without the sun, we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have life because we wouldn't have food to eat. We wouldn't have bread of life. We wouldn't have water to drink. We wouldn't have living water. So the sun is an absolute necessity. It's also a cleansing agent, ultraviolet waves. They kill, it kills bacteria, kills some virus, so it, it, it does some of those things as well. Now, people thousands and thousands of years ago, they didn't understand all those things. But they did understand that the sun was vital to life. But the problem is, rather than worship the God who created the sun, they worship the creation more. So it, 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 it is not surprising that uh, false religions would, would focus on the sun, the physical sun. Now, what about the tree, the Christmas tree? Turn to Jeremiah chapter 10. <clears throat> Jeremiah chapter 10, verse number 1. Hear you the word of the Lord which the Lord speaketh unto you, O house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord, learn not the way of the heathen, and be not dismayed at the signs of heaven, for the heathen are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are vain. For one cutteth the tree out of the forest, and the work of the hands of the workmen with the axe. They deck it with silver and gold, they fasten it with nails and with hammers, that it move not. So, we're, giving, we're given there an instruction to not learn the way of the heathen. And there are no exceptions there. It doesn't say don't learn the way of the heathens unless somebody claims that it's worship of God or Jesus or anything else. So we got an instruction not to do that. So, um, you know, that's, you know, that's just, that's instruction from the Bible. So, so far, none of that stuff is true. Uh, turn to Genesis chapter number three. We'll finish there. Genesis chapter number three. My Bible turned quickly here. Okay. And the Lord tells Satan in verse number 15, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heal. Satan's not stupid. Satan understands human physiology. Satan heard that, and he knows how procreation works. And when God said that the seed of the woman would bruise his heel, he knows that's a unique situation. Because for, we all know how procreation works, and where seed comes from and who receives seed and why a child is born as a result. But in this situation, we see a woman with her own seed, and that is totally unique. God gave us a prophecy right there before the first human birth ever occurred that there was going to be a virgin birth, and the, the, the offspring would be the one who could bruise Satan's head. Now, no normal mortal could do that. No normal mortal could bruise Satan's head. It had to be God that could bruise his head. So we, ba we basically covered the bases there. 
um, this fellow who wrote that article, he doesn't really know what the Bible says. He, you know, you know, it's, you know when you, you basically, look, you know, the Lord said, when you look for something, you're going to find it. And when you want to look for error, what you think are errors in the Bible, boy, the Bible trips people up right and left who don't believe it and don't want anything to do with God. And their pride, they, they think they're, they're superior to the Bible, to the Word of God. And so they, they don't understand anything. But the Bible tells us that there's a reason why Satan would provide a counterfeit before the fact about Jesus' virgin birth. Like we said before, if God's for it, Satan's against it. If God's against it, Satan's for it. So he, he, he wins either way. He sets up false religions, and if people turn to a false religion instead of the true and living God, then that gets them. Or if they're like this author, if they don't want anything to do with religion at all, they'll look at those false religions and then use the false religions as an excuse to reject Jesus Christ. So, having, knowing and understanding all that, that's why I don't want to have anything to do with Christmas. That's why I don't want to put up a tree. That's why I don't want to, you know, it's, it's, a, great, it's a great season to use because this time of year, as we found out, people take tracks like no other time. So praise the Lord that, that while they're talking about gifts they're giving one another, that we can talk about the gift of God that's available to anybody who will receive it. Amen? All right. Well, let's pray. Thank God for that gift. Lord, we thank you so much for the gift of God, eternal life. Lord, that you bought and paid for on the cross, that you've given to us. And Lord, you allow us to spread the good news that that gift is available to each and every person who will receive it. We're thankful, Lord, so many people had the willingness to take those tracks over this Christmas parade season. And Lord, we just hope and pray that many people would read those words, find out about your mercy, love, and grace, and what you did to redeem lost sinners. And Lord, they'd receive the gift that you offered. We thank you that, that you've given it to us. And Lord, uh, boy, what a blessing it is to have life and life more abundant. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And we're dismissed.